You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 8th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, Pakistan votes, even if many Pakistanis cannot vote for who they'd prefer to. Also ahead... The United States does not seek conflict with Iran or in the broader Middle East. But as President Biden has made clear, we will not hesitate to defend our people and hold responsible all those who harm Americans. The United States campaign against Iran-backed militant groups gets personal. Later in the show, we'll find out why currency reform is the latest bone of contention between Serbia and Kosovo. And come on, grin and bear it, it can't be as bad as the Hungarian top five last week. What a racket that was. Oh, I've read this out loud again. Buenos dias, Andrew. Today's Global Countdown will take you to Mexico, which I think is a music hotspot. Well, I'll be the judge of that. Uh, Fernando, we'll have more from you later. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. One of Earth's more extraordinary political, logistical and security exercises is underway in Pakistan. Up to 128 million registered voters will go to the polls to elect a national parliament and regional governments for all four provinces. Matters are complicated still further than usual by the fact that the leader a plurality of Pakistanis might prefer, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, is in jail. The choice is therefore between Nawaz Sharif, who has had three previous goes at it, none of which have ended well, and Bilawal Bhutu Zadari, whose parents were either Prime Minister or President. I'm joined with more by Samira Shackle, journalist and author most recently of Karachi Vice, Life and Death in a Contested City. Um, Samira, first of all, just a couple of recent developments uh, on Election Day. The reports that mobile phone and data services have been substantially, if not in entirely suspended across Pakistan. Is that surprising? Uh, It is and it isn't. So it's quite standard in Pakistan for mobile phone services to be switched off when there's a security threat. So it often happens at big rallies or if there are big protests, as there often are, uh, or when the terror threat is particularly high. So that is a kind of well-established practice in Pakistan. If you live there, it's not unusual. However, it is unusual for it to be happening on an election day. I mean, I was reporting on the 2013 elections where the security situation in Pakistan was terrible. I mean, there were, you know, more than two terror attacks a week, sometimes um, daily around the country. And there were still functioning mobile phone networks on election day because of the fact that it's really important for election observers, for uh, people running local polling stations to be able to, to um, you know, communicate with each other apart from anything else. Um and I think that you can't um, get away from the fact that I think this is indicative of, of how controlled this election is. Uh, you mentioned Imran Khan has been barred from banning um, his party. The PTI have also been subject to very intense restrictions and which they have tried to circumvent um, through technological means by setting up apps, uh, etc., where people can identify the candidates they want to vote for. So they, they are they've been trying to use. Uh, digital tools to circumvent the censorship they have been subject to. And I think, you know, that's 
can't be avoided as probably a contributing factor to the to the suspension of mobile phone services. So you suspect this is possibly not simply a response to yesterday's bombings in Balochistan of two candidates' offices, which killed at least twenty eight people. That 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 those attacks were the excuse rather than the reason for this. Uh, I think so. I mean, because it's sadly not unusual in. Uh, recent Pakistani history for there to be significant levels of violence around elections. Um, and as I said, you know, that there have been um, greater threats of violence in recent elections. I think both in, in uh, 2018 and 2013, uh, there were significant threats of violence. There were um, bomb attacks and, and killings around the country, as there sadly usually are around elections um, when tensions are running high. Uh, and generally speaking, mobile phone services have continued, despite the fact that it is, uh, you know, as I said, a well-established tool that, that the Pakistani authorities use uh, when there's a security threat. I think a nationwide suspension of mobile phone services on election day is extremely unusual. Um, I want to go back to a thing you alluded to earlier, which is the marginalisation of Imran Khan's party, the PTI. And this may not sound like a big deal, but in Pakistan it is that they are not allowed or they have not been allowed to use their familiar logo on ballot papers. Yes, that is a big deal. Uh, Their logo is the cricket bat, uh, which is um, a very obvious reference to Imran Khan's uh, cricketing History And the reason that it's so important is because 40% of the population in Pakistan is illiterate. So people voting, uh, particularly in rural areas or more impoverished areas, will rely on the symbol on the ballot paper to know which candidate that they want to vote for. So when that election symbol is stripped, it means that, you know, significant numbers of people don't know how to find their favoured candidate on the ballot paper. So it's really, really significant. Um, The Pakistani prime ministership is, of course, one of the most precarious perches in the diplomatic world. I think I'm right in saying that since the state was founded, nobody has successfully completed a single five-year term as prime minister. But in this particular case, of the two likeliest winners of this election, the two likeliest next prime ministers, uh, Nawaz Sharif and Bilawal Bhutto Zadari, How solidly entrenched are either of them ever going to feel, given that the man who appears to be the most popular politician in the country wasn't allowed stand? Will Pakistanis regard either of these two men as actually a legitimate prime minister? Uh, Yeah, I think there's a big question of legitimacy around this election. Um, There's a, you know, actually Imran Khan was, but by the, around the time he was ousted, he was, had, had lost a lot of his public popularity. I mean, he was really losing support due to the economic crisis and perceived mismanagement of of various things. Um, And the way that he's been hounded since being ousted has ironically bolstered and massively increased his support. Um, So yeah, I think that that's always going to be a spectre. I mean, Imran Khan is not... um, someone who will go quietly uh he's not uh so he he's going to be you know even in after the 2013 election which he decisively did not win he you know still said there was vote rigging and he'd been unfairly denied etc and caused a big big kind of prolonged ruckus with a very lengthy protest march to Islamabad and so on so i think now when he genuinely has been treated extremely unfairly we can expect that he won't be going away as a political force. Um, and I think there's also the the wider point around the, the role of the military as kingmaker, which has always been the case in Pakistan, but has been 
it's becoming more and more painfully obvious to the point that it's difficult to to see any civilian premiership is particularly significant. Samira Shackle, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Emma Searle with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. The only anti-war candidate in Russia has been barred from running in a presidential election in March. The country's electoral commission said it had found irregularities in over 9,000 of the 100,000 signatures of support submitted by veteran politician Boris Nadezhdin. Mexico has surpassed China as the top source of U.S. imports for the first time in more than two decades. According to new figures released on Wednesday, the value of goods imported by the United States from Mexico rose nearly 5% last year, while the value of Chinese imports fell 20%. And Australia will give workers the right to disconnect from work emails and other contact from their employers after office hours. The measure is part of a series of industrial relations reforms proposed by the centre-left Labour government. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Emma. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Last week, the Iraq-based Iran-backed militant group Kataib Hezbollah issued a somewhat self-important statement announcing a suspension of attacks upon American facilities in the Middle East, of which there have recently been dozens, including one on a US base in Jordan, which had fatal consequences. This ceasefire offer does not appear to have impressed the United States. Last night in Baghdad, senior Kataib Hezbollah commander Commander Abu Bakir al-Sadi was killed along with two bodyguards in an American drone strike on his car. Well, I'm joined now by Renard Mansour, Research Fellow in the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House and Project Director for its Iraq Initiative. Um, Renard, first of all, was this the United States fairly emphatically expressing its belief that Kataib Hezbollah had something to do with the attack on the base in Jordan? Yes, that's right. I mean, Kitab Hezbollah claimed the attack on, on the base in Jordan, after which it said it was ceasing its fire. Um, and the Biden administration was, you know, since that attack under increasing pressure to show force, to show response, um, which led over the weekend to attacks across the region uh, in Syria, Iraq uh, and elsewhere. Um, and this is part of that continued attack by the U.S., response by the U.S. Um, that has said a red line for Biden and Washington has been no Americans, soldiers or service people can be killed. And what happened in Jordan and what Kitab Hezbollah did, killing the three service people, kind of hit that red line. So I think we are to expect more of these types of tit-for-tat attacks and hostilities moving forward. I mean, given the manner and the location of the attack, there are obvious parallels with the strike by an American drone a little over four years ago that killed the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps commander Qasem Soleimani. Think that was regarded at the time uh, on the orders of Donald Trump as it was as somewhat uh, impetuous and incendiary. Uh, has it come to be seen in retrospect as actually kind of a smart move, i.e. the kind of language the Iranians understand? Well, I wouldn't say that, actually. Um, if, you, you know, that attack four years ago... Um, if you look at four years on where these groups are, what the situation is in you know Iraq as well as in the region, many of these groups have actually become stronger. And on the contrary, it's the Americans that have lost influence and lost more and more political sway and, and leverage in Iraq. So the, the problem for the U.S. has always been this. They are obviously very good at military strikes. 
They're very good at economic sanctions. And, and, and they've tried to use these two tools to try and contain all these groups like Kitab, Hezbollah, or other uh, militias. However, they've just been unable to do so. Kitab, Hezbollah, many of these popular mobilization forces continue to operate in Iraq, Syria, across the region, posing a threat to U.S. interests. And so to answer your question, I would say that, again, this is along a similar line of American American attacks in the region that is is, is part of an incoherent, grander foreign policy. Will this make that relationship between Washington, D.C. and Baghdad even more difficult, though? Because there is still a relationship. There are at least two and a half thousand uh, American troops still in Iraq. And whatever views the Iraqi government might privately hold about Qatayb, Hezbollah and other similar organisations, they are kind of obliged to uh, be outraged at this, well, fairly, fairly obvious abrogation of Iraq's sovereignty. Um, you know, keep in mind that Kitab Hezbollah is still part of the Iraqi state, um, is part of the Iraqi government under the National Security Council. So, you know, the, the government of Iraq, I think the irony of this entire situation, this entire mess, is both the American sort of administration in Washington and the government of Iraq are on the same page when it comes to U.S. troop withdrawal. They are they, they, they have an ongoing dialogue known as the joint cooperation, joint security cooperation dialogue in which the U.S. will change its presence, will remove the troops that are there fighting ISIS and move towards what they're calling a bilateral normal order, normalized order. The challenge in the context of post-October 7th is that the Biden administration does not want to be seen as running away or withdrawing from a, a, a position of weakness. And the Iraqi government is saying, but we have a deal and, and, and we need to continue this deal. So it's about choreographing this withdrawal that is the complication. I think I suspect last night's attack will push the government of Iraq to want to hurry up this process, whereas the Americans are, are, are trying to be a bit more careful in how it is seen. They don't want another Afghanistan to be, you know, in, in the sense of being seen as running on the running away in, in a position of weakness. Well, what kind of response can we anticipate to this strike from Iran, though? Will they be wary of making it look too obviously like Qatayb Hezbollah is one of their proxies? Well, I mean, there, 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 are, there are reasons why groups like Kitab Hezbollah and, and other armed groups linked to, to sort of align to Iran exist, uh, partly because these are local groups with their own interests. So they're not entirely Iranian proxies, but they do often align with Iran and they do share a vision with Iran. But from the perspective of Iran, Kitab Hezbollah also gives it gives them a, a, a sort of deniability. Right. So when Kitab Hezbollah, for example, uh, attacks and kills three American service people, Iran, the Iranian government can quickly condemn that act and say, this is not us. So there's that deniability and, and, and actually could push Kitab Hezbollah to call us for a ceasefire. So it's a very complicated relationship. But certainly Iran will continue to support and align with many of these groups across the region, which view themselves as the front line of, 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 of resistance against what they see as American imperialism, particularly as, as they're looking to be, become defenders of, of the Palestinian cause uh, today. And, and just finally, how great is the danger that all parties to this conflict have now kind of 
well, whether accidentally or deliberately committed themselves to a cycle whereby they are obliged to just perpetuate this. Iran and or those organisations sympathetic to it will feel obliged to keep striking American facilities, else they look weak, uh, and America will feel obliged to respond still further, and round we go again. Well, that's exactly it. Uh, it's, it's, It's kind of like an argument in which both sides want to have the last word and then call for ceasefire. Um, and, 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 and we know that this type of argument will ne- never end in uh, well. So each side wants to show force. Each side wants to show that it is the stronger side, but then to say, and now let's stop. So the consequences of this, and, and keep in mind that neither side actually wants a direct confrontation. Neither side, and what I mean by that is an all-out war. They don't want to be sort of drawn into any conflict. They're just trying to choreograph how best they could look to, 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 to pursue their interests. But there's a danger in this. There's a danger in this tit-for-tat that we're looking at. There's a danger to this sort of escalation in the region. And that is when something goes wrong. That is when especially people are killed. You have fatalities. Um, um, and, and and then there is a forced need to respond. Uh, and we've seen that over, you know, the, the, the last few months. And I think we will continue to see this precarious uh, tit for tat and, and, and equilibrium exploding. Renard Mansour, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And you're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. Kosovo, along with Montenegro, has long used the euro as its currency, despite being neither a member of the Eurozone or the European Union. Recently, however, Kosovo's government has been attempting to force this arrangement upon Kosovo's small, ethnically Serbian minority, who generally prefer to conduct their cash transactions using the Serbian dinar. Earlier this week, Serbia called an extraordinary session of the UN Security Council to discuss the matter, and Kosovo is being widely criticised for inflaming tensions with its neighbour. Al Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay can tell us more. Um, Guy, why has Kosovo's government decided to make a thing of this? Well, Kosovo's government has been making a thing of a lot of things over the past few months, and this is under the leadership of Prime Minister Albin Kurti, um, who is a committed Albanian nationalist who doesn't like Serbia very much at all, makes no secret of his um, poor relations with Serbia's president, Aleksandr Vucic. And he has been, over the past year in particular, um, implementing a strategy of, as far as possible, forcibly bringing ethnic Serb areas in Kosovo under the control of the Kosovo government in Pristina. And this has encompassed everything from forcibly installing um, ethnic Albanian mayors and majority Serb areas in North Kosovo, um, through to removing Serbian language signs and flags from buildings in majority Serb areas. Um, And we've now seen this issue with the currency, that uh, uh, the dinar has been banned as a currency uh, from the 1st of February, according to a Kosovo Central Bank regulation. Um, Mr. Kurti saying rather disingenuously, well, it's never been an official currency in Kosovo. The euro's been our official currency since 2002. Of course, that's not taking into account the fact that uh, Serbia and Kosovo Serbs don't recognise the legitimacy of Kosovo's government or the Republic of Kosovo at all. And the, uh, the sort of the, the use of the dinar in Serb areas and the euro in a majority Albanian areas was one of those fudges which allowed people to get on with their lives. And once you start eliminating those fudges, things get pretty sticky. 
Is this not where the disingenuousness goes both ways, though? I mean, presumably Serbian authorities would be other than delighted if some other country's currency was widely used on their own territory. I think where the disingenuousness comes from vis-a-vis Belgrade, we've had some clues from from the the Kosovo Serbs in the north of Kosovo about how they feel about this. And they reckon that, you know, this isn't something which has suddenly taken Belgrade by surprise. Um, The announcement was made by the Kosovo Central Bank in the middle of January, and the regulation started to be enforced on the 1st of February. Uh, But people in north Kosovo, uh, the, the ethnic Serbs there, they feel that the talks that Belgrade and Pristina have had under the auspices of the European Union must have included some discussion about currency issues. And that if Belgrade's making a big fuss about this, causing a United Nations, calling a United Nations Security Council extraordinary meeting, it's uh, protesting a bit too much about what it did or what it didn't know. Because we have seen Serbia making an awful lot of concessions uh, towards the Republic of Kosovo um, in the past few months and, frankly, over the past 10 years, uh, the latest of which was um, allowing Kosovo number plates uh, to be used without any alteration uh, in Serbia and also um, not kicking up a fuss about the demise of Serbian number plates with the initials of Kosovo towns on them, which was a big deal for a long time. I'm sure we've had chats about the number plate dispute, uh, Andrew, uh, in in the past. And you know this was all built up as it's terribly important to Serb identity, and uh, we don't recognise uh, the legitimacy of Kosovo's number plates. And then all of a sudden, very quietly, at the start of this year, uh, those number plates were gone and Kosovo number plates were accepted in Serbia. So there have been concessions from the Belgrade side and ethnic Serbs, particularly in North Kosovo, do rather feel that they're being not treated in the best possible way by the government in Belgrade, while at the same time coming under what the International Crisis Group calls sustained pressure from the government in Pristina. Just finally then, do you think we may see a similar trajectory with this issue, i.e. that Belgrade will be seen to be making a fuss and defending uh, its brothers just across the border, etc., etc., and then will eventually fold? I mean, what people have been talking about with this issue is is not a, 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 a revocation of the Kosovo Central Bank regulation, but a transition. This is what the international partners of Kosovo have been calling for. And when I say the international partners, I mean the US, the EU and the Quint countries, uh, which includes the United Kingdom. They've all been saying that this is much too sudden but they haven't been saying that it's a bad thing full stop. So yes, I think you will find that after a period of time, um, even though Serbia is kicking up this fuss now, we will find that it's no longer going to be the case that you go out in North Mitrovica and you pay for your coffee in dinars. Uh, But it's just worth reminding everyone at this point, it's an existential issue for Kosovo Serbs because they're getting their salaries, they're getting their pensions and they're getting their social benefits paid to them in dinars. And yesterday, um, Kosovo actually refused to allow an armoured vehicle with the regular delivery of dinars into Kosovo over the administrative line, as Serbia calls it, and the border, as Kosovo calls it. And uh, that's actually directly affecting people's ability to live in their homes in, in North Kosovo and other majority Serb areas. Guy Delaune, thank you. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio.
You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller, and that cheery sting alerts you to the fact that it is the last item on Thursday's briefing, that it is, therefore, time to welcome Fernando Augusto Pacheco to the studio for the Global Countdown. Um, Fernando, frankly, I'm astonished after last week's fiasco that anybody would still be listening to us. Even you will concede, <laughs> limitlessly enthusiastic as you are about all expressions of popular song, that the Hungarian top five we endured last week was not a classic. It was not a classic, so that's why... I, I decided, you know what, I have to go to a hotspot music-wise, and that's Mexico. You know, they're doing very well tourism-wise, food-wise, but when it comes to music, mm-hmm. this year is going to be the year of Mexican music. Uh, people are listening to it all around the world. Are they? They are. They are indeed. And the type of music you might be surprised. Uh, <laughs> what what I mean, good. <laughs> a good surprise, I may, I may say. Because at number five, we have a very, in some ways, quite traditional band. So they play regional uh, Mexican music. Is, is, is there a really huge guitar and accordion involved in this? There are. Amazing. There are. And, uh, you know, they're called Grupo Frontera. They are from Texas, indeed. But, of mm-hmm. course, they have Mexican heritage. They have a song with another Grupo, Grupo Firma El Amor de Su Vida. No estoy llorando Es que se están descongelando Sentimientos no son lágrimas de llanto Si de pronto alguien de aquí there's an accordion and what was clearly, I think, a really large guitar in that. And you were smiling, so perhaps maybe you kind of like it? I didn't I didn't mind it. Regular <laughs> listeners, like we have any left, to the Global Countdown will know that I do have, by and large, a fondness for the country music of the American Deep South. And obviously, given the location, there is a huge overlap uh, with a, a Mexican influence as well. Um quite a lot of which has had a, a, a vastly improving effect upon country music. So I didn't actually, and regular listeners will know how unusual this is, I did not actually object violently to that. And it's poetic. I mean, he says, Today I saw the love of my life, happy as ever, kissing the love of her life. Uh, it's quite sad, but you know. But he's got his big guitar and an accordion, so life's not all terrible. And he's a global pop star. And he's well. a global pop star. <laughs> Plenty more fish in the sea. Uh, that's at number five. What's at number four? We continue this kind of traditional vibe, perhaps a little bit more modern here, because this song, again, as most songs these days, became a TikTok sensation. Mm. Uh, and good so he- nobody's ever heard more than 10 seconds of it. Perhaps. <laughs> but maybe he would play my maybe 20 or something like that. Uh, it's Oscar Ortiz and his bro- two brothers basically charted already. So that's the first time that Oscar is charting the music, um, you know, in the music parades as well. Mrs. Ortiz must be very proud. Very proud. Oscar Ortiz and Edgardo Núñez with First Love. Yo quisiera saber lo que sientes saber. Explícame una vez. Lo que te hice a ti para que pongas el fin en esta relación. Solo tú, solo tú, solo tú. Another accordion, more big guitars, I'll wager. You're loving it, you're loving it. <laughs> and he's crying, basically, because his really? first love doesn't want him anymore. So he's, in a way, he's very similar to the number five song. So and, and, and he's got worse problems than that because all these brothers got in the charts before he did. Exactly. So, you know, good good on Miss Ortiz, as, as you're saying. Their mother must be very proud. Well, indeed. Let, let, let's see if we can maintain this absolutely cracking standard, Fernando.
Armando. What what is at number three? First of all, you can't say anything bad about the song because oh, it's being added to the Monaco playlist this week. Um, so I mean. Really? Out of contract, please, Andrew. I, I'm not sure it actually says that anywhere in my contract, Andrew. <laughs> well, let's have a Let's listen. find out. Let's find out. Number three, we have Kaliu Shis and Peso Pluma, Igual Kirun Henhel. See, Fernando, I'm actually just reading <laughs> yes. my contract. That is that is the rustling there. Uh, and I, I have found the clause to which you refer. It turns out you are right. I am absolutely forbidden from uttering a word against any song actually on our playlist. So I'm going to go ahead and agree that that was not at all terrible glutinous drivel and was in fact entirely wonderful. It's beautiful. Look at the disco beat as on Kalyu, she's she's very respected, you know, mm, these days. Very and respected. Although she's she was born in it's, the US. It says here in my contract <laughs> that I respect her greatly. I'm very glad. She's American, but she has a Colombian father. So that's uh, that song's from her fourth album, which is her second in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So she can, you know, she sings in both songs, but I think when she sings in Spanish, I think the critics perhaps uh, favorite uh, those songs Only a little bit more. they don't understand the lyrics. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but I love it. I love number three. Uh, at number two. Number two, I mean, Javi. Uh, I have problems pronouncing his name because it's X-A-V-I. Mm. In Portuguese, would say Xavi. Uh, in English, I think you say Xavi or Xavi, something. Xavi, I'm actually not sure. Never tried until He's now. He's a young man. He's only 19 years old. From plenty of time to learn a trade. Plenty of time. He's from Arizona as mm-hmm. well, uh, but of course, Mexican heritage as well. I mean, he's global. I think he's probably the most kind of popular artist at the moment, or maybe the second most well, in popular. In the whole world. I would say so because he's only you, number two in Mexico. Well, number one must be a humdinger, but we we we, uh, we, we will get to that. The, I'm, I don't give spoiler spoilers usually, but let's have a listen. Izavi with La Victima. <laughs> He sounds somewhat more cheerful than most of his compatriots. Because this genre that he's singing is called Corrido Tumbado. So mm-hmm. it is regional Mexican music, but mm-hmm. with some elements of trap music. You know, a little bit more up-tempo, a little bit more modern, perhaps. And again, he's 19. He looks 19. He's very, very young. He still wear braces as well. What was the gist of what he was just singing there? Your Spanish is a great deal better than mine. It is a love story. I mean, the victim, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so of course he's the victim. Obviously. Obviously he is. But I mean, talking about number one, I think there's a good segue now. He's the victim because he only chooses the devil to, 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 to fall in love with. Oh, I see. Or the devil. Is, I mean, do you have the devil in a female version in, in English? Or the devil can be no, both sexes? No, I, I think, the, I think the, the devil in the the Judeo-Christian tradition is usually depicted as a male, but I think we have deviated from the point somewhat. We did, because our next track is called La Diabla, ah, or The Female Devil. Okay, my, my Spanish is not great, but even <laughs> I could have had a swing at that. And guess who's singing La Diabla? Is it Henry Kissinger? <laughs> it's not Henry Kissinger, <laughs> but it's Javi again. Shall we have a listen? <laughs> Por ti, mi cara aquí no muerdo, no se me asusta. 
That's the number one song worldwide, I have worldwide, to say. Worldwide, not world, just in Mexico, not everywhere. Everywhere. So that's remarkable for a 19-year-old from Mexico as well. Well done, Mexico. I mean, they're doing so well in the charts. Well, now, you may have... So you were saying earlier, uh, when we introduced this item, that this was going to be the year of Mexican pop, a, a claim which listeners who are still with us will recall I, I mocked and derided but do you genuinely think that there is something to it that it might not just that it might be one of those things where it's not just Mexican music we are listening to but we are listening to sufficient Mexican music that a lot of everybody else's music becomes Mexicified yes indeed and very surprising because even in Latin America Colombia and Puerto Rico were the countries you were mm-hmm. looked for for global superstars but I think we should pay attention to Mexico more and more Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you as always. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm back with The Daily at 1800 London. For now, thanks for listening.